Hi, and welcome to the Filmmaker Toolkit Podcast. My name is Crystal Fault, Deputy Editor of Film and TV Craft at IndieWire. And my guest today, talking about her new film, which you can see right now on Netflix, uh, Dick Johnson is Dead, director Kirsten Johnson. And for the first 25 years of Kirsten's life, she was, uh, let's say, well, she was one of the best cinematographers working in documentary film. And in 2016, she made her directorial feature debut with Camera Person, in which she examined those 25 years spent behind the camera through some of the footage that she shot. And now with Dick Johnson is Dead, um, she makes a film with her father, who has dementia. And the two tackle the grief and difficulty of losing someone while while they're still alive by making this joyous, raucous, funny, and yet sad film in which they do everything from staging Dick's death and funeral, um, all while you know documenting and capturing his decline. And uh, we love talk of craft and process on this podcast. And for Kristen, uh, life and making cinema are are completely intertwined. And and this is a, this is a little bit of a longer conversation, but it's it's. I hope you enjoy because it it's rare for someone someone is so eloquent and open uh, about the process of making a film. And so, as we continue our journey through some of the best nonfiction films of 2020. Our episode today is brought to you by one of those documentaries, the Apple original film Boy State, which is this political coming-of-age story and journey into the heart of American democracy through an annual rite of passage in which a thousand teenage boys from across Texas come together to build a representative government from the ground up. And side note, I, I did Boy State when I was 17, and if you don't know about it, you're in for a crazy ride with this film. And it's for your consideration, best documentary feature, Visit fyc.appletvplus.com. I kind of want to pick up where uh, a lot of people left off with you, which is Camera Person, and in, in that it, it, this is a very different film from from Dick Johnson. But you know, my gut tells me that something about the journey of even just making that film and kind of the artistic and self exploration of that film had to have i imagine had some impact of even just even opening you up to even the concept of 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 making something like this film now oh yeah your gut's right <laughs> <laughs> good gut chris i mean on multiple levels obviously right i think the core and key level is the relationship of cinematic language to our like most profound existential questions um, and so, you know, when Nels Bangerter cut the shot of me moving my mom's ashes in front of the footage of my mom alive, for absolutely sure, the first time I watched it, I thought for a second that my mother had come back to life. You know, in the Pulp Fiction, John Travolta is back way. <laughs> Right. And so that that electric realization was it was true for me, like cinema can do this. It can resuscitate a person. Um, but also just this questioning of what is cinema, right? Like all of these dead people up on the screen are alive for us. Is watching a movie a hallucination? Is, you know, it's not looking at memories. It's looking at the present moment. So, you know, my interest in time and consciousness and ethics all embedded in camera person, um, obviously, 
you know, I did everything I could to sort of harvest and harness all of those questions in Dick Johnson is Dead. But also camera person freed me. Like, you know, I could do anything I wanted was the way I felt after making camera person. I think I understand what you mean by that because I, I, I there was a certain right there was a certain dread that you went into camera person with right the, the i think it was the concern of the young woman in afghanistan and 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 right this whole idea of representation of what you're doing and things like that and i have to imagine that what you're kind of saying is is that in that exploration of you as a person behind that camera it, it, the kind of formal explore, exploration that you and Nels went through in making that is is that is that was there something you emerged a, a more I think often when we think of confident artists, we're thinking, oh, I'll, I'll move the camera more, <laughs> you know, but, but I, I mean, I, if it, I think we're talking more of like a mental state, right. And, 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 and is that kind of what you're getting at there? Oh, absolutely. I mean, look, I was raised Seventh-day Adventist. I was an incredibly earnest and believing child. I, I was trying so hard to be good my entire childhood and then as I shifted out of that into sort of a more, um, a wider awareness of social justice and thinking of myself as someone who was politically implicated and could be active in the world, I still held on to an old construct of goodness. I imagined that, you know, being a progressive person was to figure out the right way to think about things as opposed to owning my own humanity, owning my own failings, owning my own um, position in the world. And, you know, I mean, think I've always owned my whiteness. I haven't always owned my femaleness, um, owning my Americanness, all of these sort of titles and identities that we all have to struggle with as humans. Um, I've long been aware of many of those, but I think camera person, what it did for me was that I grappled with the shame I feel about not being a perfect person, not being a good person all the time. You know, though that that feeling um, and sort of letting that get some air, bringing that out into the world in a more transparent way, saying you can't just decide to be an ethical person and be done, that it is a constant negotiation, particularly if you have a camera. It was that kind of honesty with myself that made camera person the breakthrough that it was for me. And I haven't seen, I haven't gone back and watched that film in um, a few years, but something that is always, it's an image from that film that will always stick with me was the image of your mom and the wind. And I I don't remember, was it visiting an old childhood home or something, but there was something about her in the plains and in the wind. And she was, I think she was fairly, fairly far gone in terms of dementia at that point. And it's an incredible image. It's an incredible, powerful moment, but there was also something about at these, at that moment of, of your family being in there. I think you turned the, the camera on the kids at one point, you know, but I mean, there's that element of, 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 of you putting that there 
um, that to me is beyond the fact that your father is now have this dementia. There's, there's something there that when even I heard about this project, my mind instantly went back to, to that image. Isn't that something? Well, thank you to your memory. And, you know, I mean, that was also thanks to Pete Horner's sound design, right? Because he put 11 layers of wind in and he's, you know, and a subwoofer and his, he said, you know, I wanted to blow your mother off the world. And he did, you know, and it's so interesting, Chris, you know, I'm just thinking about how much you care about um, the craft of filmmaking and the technology of filmmaking. And, you know, you asked me to come today with a pair of headphones and because of the madness of life, I showed up to this interview without headphones and it's changing the way that we're talking to each other because we're trying not to interrupt each other, which is not what we usually do when we talk to each other. And in some ways it's making both of us sort of hold our tongues. We're waiting till the other person finishes, which I just think is so fascinating because this is for me, like with camera work, a camera makes me shut up more. <laughs> and, and, and so because of this, like the constraints of recording this conversation, where you know you don't want your voice to be recorded on my device that's recording here for the final cut. We're changing the way we speak to each other and I'm I'm sort of thinking differently about the way we talk to each other, which I'm finding exciting. And more contemplative in some ways. I think we're both such enthusiastic people. So you're smiling at me and waiting and not saying anything. So I love it. I'm smiling because I think there's an element here of the apparatus of filmmaking, right? I'm smiling because I just finished watching your film for a second time. And the fact that you're thinking like this, um, not that you were thinking about me talking to me during it, but that, that idea of the apparatus as it relates to these things. And I think when people... You know, we uh, we both know Robert Greene. We love Robert. You know, these these kind of thinking about the apparatus and stuff. And sometimes I think when he talks, and I love all his films, we think about, well, this seems academic. This thought process, and it, of course, it's not in his films. It's emotional, and it, it, it and it's not just this idea of um, form, right? There's also this idea of embracing the apparatus as it relates to it. Um, and so I'm sure there was an instinctual moment when talking to your father about the house to put the camera down. I'm sure there was something you just said you, yourself. You 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 tend to shut up when you're holding the camera and here you're trying to talk to your dad. So I'm sure there was something instinctual, but I have to imagine there is also something every aspect of this and this process and this art thinking about these things and the apparatus itself and what it means as you're doing this has to be something that was an ongoing conversation, right? Absolutely. So like you're using some of my favorite words ongoing. I think that once you introduce the apparatus, once you introduce the recording device, this is ongoing. So the recording apparatus is the introduction of the future. It's the introduction of death. It's the introduction of the audience, right? So if it was just you and me, Chris, we wouldn't need to record this. Or maybe we would if one of us was dying and this was our last conversation because we'd want to have a different way to remember each other's voice. Because the thing, I mean, I think that I learned from the work that I did filming in so many places was that my memory could not contain it. 
but the evidence that I had gathered by recording, the filmed evidence of where I had been and what I had lived, it could often re-stimulate memories or give me memory back. And hence it gave me, it gave people back to me. The experience of looking into another person's eyes was given back to me, right? And, you know, obviously like that became like deeply emotionally crucial in the state of case of my mother, right? Where I hadn't filmed with her hardly at all. And then in desperation, I did it, you know, as she was close to her death. But, you know, in this conversation with you and me, we have an ongoing relationship. We've talked several times over the years. We meet in film festivals. Now we meet on Zoom, but it's an ongoing relationship. And this, because of the apparatus, you know, maybe no one ever listens to this again. But what we don't know about the future is maybe this is, these are our last words. Maybe one of us leaves our house today and we die. And suddenly this conversation, people who love us will be looking for clues of who we were in this conversation. But we don't, we don't know if this conversation just goes out to sea and doesn't matter to anyone ever, or if this becomes, or maybe one or the other of us makes each other say something we never imagined we'd say. So there's stakes, that be, the apparatus gives stakes to a situation. It, it's catalytic. These are the things I think about the recording. Let me ask you this, and this might be more of like a personal filmmaking thing, but you know, some let's just take the because uh, I think it's something that a lot of people can relate to. Um, either they've experienced or they know people experienced it. You went through a process um, in this film of moving your father out of his beloved house, um, and there's also removing the car from him, closing down his office. Basically, you know, this idea that it is time for him to leave this life and come back to New York with you. And that act of closing down this space that spent his life, um, may it be work, may it be raising a family, may it be um, your, your late mother, that is something that a lot of people, I think, can relate to um, in, in, in terms of that experience. I'm, I'm wondering, and this might be a weird question, is the act of documenting, of filming that, something that... I, my instinct was initially, well, Jesus, that's another thing you have to do. And it's already hard enough to move a, a parent out of the house, no matter how many movers you hire and the emotional side. But is there also just this element, we, as we talk about this filming, is there also just something uh, that that made this creation and made this journey? I'm just wondering what emotionally these things are like um, for these moments that I think we can all relate to. But then the idea that you're also going to be documenting them and you're on a creative journey with your father and doing them. Uh, well, you know what I love that you made me think of when you were talking is like this idea of dismantling a world. And, you know, part of what cinema is, is trying to imagine worlds and build worlds or craft worlds. Like if you're in the, you know, editing room of a documentary, you've got all of these fragments and moments that you're trying to build. You know, I often think of an edit as architectural. We're trying to build a structure that helps us, you know, sort of move around the spaces of an experience. And so when you were talking, I was thinking like, oh, right. Like, you know, that act of dismantling a life after you've spent your whole life, like dreaming, can I buy a house? Will I have children? How will they grow up? Well, at a certain point, you've done those things 
and then they get taken apart again. And in some ways, you know, my father's brain is being taken apart by dementia. And so I thought of the act of filming him as a way of gathering fragments that we could put back together again mm-hmm. so that the images of our house, the images of his office, the images of him driving were a way to um, rebuild the thing that had been dismantled. And, you know, obviously like just on the you know level of like pain in the neck, like I did not, you know, it's like there, there was times where I was like, oh, like this is the last thing I want to be doing is trying to be filming and moving boxes and dealing with my own grief. But on the other hand, uh, I think what I, I did out of the experience of having filmed so many other people's films was that I didn't ask myself to do everything simultaneously. I thought very specifically, what is my role in this moment? And, and in some ways, the filming of moments opened up some space to just let it be about the emotional experience of leaving the place. So I didn't try to like, you know, help my dad fill all the boxes. Like we were going to wait to fill the boxes. And of course, because of his mm-hmm. dementia, he was like, I'm putting the books in the boxes. And I'd be like, no, no, dad, we're going to do that tomorrow. Like, but I tried to sort of pop open some new space mm-hmm. in the situation. So we stayed longer with the emotions. I mean, I think it's not unlike what happens in the therapy when there's a moment where like you as the, you know, patient is sitting there talking, talking, talking. And then the therapist says, wait, stay with that emotion. Mm-hmm. Right. And there seems something, I mean, and possibly it helps based on your father's um, professional career, but there seems to be something very emotionally healthy happening at these moments that I think when we go through them in life, um, the physical act of moving, the the burden of moving, it ends up it ends up pushing down all of that stuff. Like, I just have to get through this task. And so there is, there's something about that, but it also feels like that's also something that's created by the filmmaking, but it's also something you're able to capture. And there seems to be something here, as I was thinking about why this film is so joyous, there seems to be something here in the process of making this film that is emotionally healthy in how to deal with these things through the act of filmmaking. It it doesn't seem to be separated from it. Well, you know, that's what I was dreaming of for sure. And I think, I think my dad has been an emotionally healthy person throughout his life. And he, you know, he loved his work as a psychiatrist and he kept certain boundaries around it. Uh, You know, one of my favorite stories about him is watching The Simpsons with him, me and my brother watching The Simpsons, the phone rings. We put it on pause because we were watching on like, it was like the VCR, right? And put it on pause. And he said, oh, you don't want to do that. No, no, just take it off and just step down and you'll come and see me on Monday. Okay, all right, call anytime. Hung up the phone, pressed play on The Simpsons, and we were like, Dad, did that person just have a noose around their neck? And he was like, They sure did, but they took it off. You know, so like there were boundaries in our family. You know, my father wasn't breaking, uh, patient confidentiality, but he was saying, I'm talking to someone right now who wants to commit suicide. 
And I'm also confident in my relationship with them that they will show up on Monday for their appointment. And so I witnessed that as a child, right? And I took that confidence in, in some way, in some profound way. And um, so, you know, like for me and the kids and my dad to sit around at dinner and talk about how we were going to kill grandpa and how grandpa was going to die and what aging felt like. And could dad really do that? Because, you know, he might really trip. It was like talking about fragility of the body, talking about the difference in being eight years old and being 86 years old, talking about that death is real. It will happen, but we don't know when or how it will happen. Like that was kind of an amazing way to engage with death with my children. And, you know, and they're still like, you know, we saw a snake run over on the road. And one of my kids said, ah, that would have been a good way to take grandpa out, you know? And that's fun. That brings the conversation. Like, I think that is healthy. Um, that as opposed to pitying grandpa, we can also laugh with grandpa, right? I, I, I had a teacher once, um, we took a class on comedy. And it, it, what you said just made me think about this is that um, when she wanted to deal with, uh, when, when we were talking more about like the Billy Wilder comedies and these ones that are trying to deal with 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 real issues and build in all these things, the apparatus of a film within a film became this distancing device to bring in the serious. And it's interesting. It's that's certainly um, the way as a viewer, we're experiencing what this film, which is sometimes a comedy, but it also seems as if that inside the film, the apparatus within the apparatus also gives you a way of talking about these things with kids and the rest of the family to a degree. Oh, totally. And, and, you know, I mean, I'm really interested in, my own resistance to the idea of distance. Like whenever someone will say like, does the camera protect you or give you distance? I'll be like, no, it, it like, it allows me to go deeper in. I use it as a transmission device. I want to connect. But I honestly think in some ways, you know, this project gave me both the old thing that I've been trying to do forever, which is like get closer to people, go deeper with people. But it also protected me. It did protect me from some of like my, like I grieved so much when my mom had Alzheimer's. I cried for like a decade. I feel like I cried for a decade straight. And I really, I was like, I do not have it in me and I do not want to. And we are going to make this funny. Like I had this like determination, this real like, ah, you know. And so having the craft of the film Mm -hmm. was a thing that that was like, how do you make a funny film out of dementia? Like, why? Like, no one wants to watch my dad. He's not that interesting. Like, how can we make him interesting to watch? You know, these questions kept me occupied, active, creative, kept me talking to people who I never would have talked to. Like stunt people had really profound conversations about mortality with a lot of stunt people. Um, But one of the things I've just learned as this film comes out into the world um, that I didn't know about my mother um, was that, you know, my mother understood grief in ways that I knew nothing about. I had not experienced it yet as a human. And I have spoken to, I would say now, dozens of people who've seen the movie and who've told me a story of something that my mom did with them 
when they were in their most acute grief. Really? And I'm talking like someone whose child died, someone whose wife committed suicide. My mother, they, they all have very specific memories of my mother doing things like taking them blackberry picking and making a blackberry pie, you know, go like doing things, helping people do through the grief, with the grief. Like just treating it is, it is a part of being alive and you got to keep doing. And so I think that the filmmaking process for me with this was just like, dad and I are just going to keep doing this. We don't know how to do or what to do, but we're going to keep doing it. We're going to take a short break here to remind you that today's podcast is brought to you by Boy State. This Apple original film is a political coming-of-age story that explores the heart of American democracy through an annual rite of passage in which a thousand teenage boys from across Texas come together to build a representative government from the ground up. And, and that's as crazy as it sounds. It's, uh, it's a lot of fun. And for your consideration, best documentary feature, uh, visit fyc.appletvplus.com. Well, I'm wondering if you could take us back to the original conception, because, I mean, obviously, I noticed I noticed uh, Nels has a writing credit on this as well, which makes me think that there's there's layers being added and 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 there's a constant evolution here. Um, And I'm not really I'm more just curious um, to to think in terms of how much this evolves after having watched it a couple of times. What was where were where was your head in terms of how this would go in terms of what you were going to film and the various layers when you when you started off with this and i imagine had a conversation with your dad himself about about doing the project absolutely i mean one it's many conversations and like this is the thing of like being a parent i feel like you know you you sort of have this idea of like we're gonna have one conversation about sex we're gonna have one conversation about death we're gonna have one conversation about drugs like it's like no you have like so many conversations about these things, right? Um, you know, you know, our kids are egg donor, you know, children. Like we've had so many different conversations about bio- biology, genetics, you know, all those origins, ancestors. There are many conversations to have. And um, so the... What was really deliberate about this process was I knew my like baseline. I want to see every person I am collaborating with, see them as a human, like look you in the eyes, Chris, and know where you're at with your own mortality. Like know what's happening with your parents. Know what, you know, have you ever thought about dying? Right. So literally every person from the first pitch of this film to, you know, all the different crew members, the conversations happened. So, you know, like, Chris, how do you wish to die? You're not going to get me on that one. Uh, I, 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 somewhere, somewhere outside of the Trump administration. How about that? <laughs> <laughs> well, fair enough, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. You want to live to see that day. You want to live to see the day where you have hope for this country again. And that's, and that tells me something new about the way you think. It tells me something new about you emotionally. Like you're not going there right yet with me. 
Right? No, it's true. No, I, and, and, and that's part of it. Right. I'll be honest with you. You know, I, I'm watching, I, I watched your movie again this morning. There, I can't believe you're getting me to do this. I watched again, I watched this movie again this morning, and I am, I am in my, my, my parents' house. You know, I haven't been with them in a while. And, uh, you know, and um, listening to my dad rattle around downstairs with his cane and, and thinking about these things and uh, thinking about my kids running around downstairs while I was watching it. And it, it, it makes it made me intensely aware of how much I don't deal with these things and how much I don't think about them. And yet I'm suddenly in this situation where I'm like literally in the house with my, my aging parents. And um and that's why I am very envy. I think one of the things that this film makes you feel is, uh, is, uh, is, is, is a sense of um, um, emotional healthiness about, about dealing with these things. And in my case, making me intensely aware of how much I'm not, <laughs> you know, you know, I mean, what's so profound in what you're saying, I think we all are living with this sensation of it's too late. Yeah. I didn't talk about something. Something is gone. It's too late. When in fact, there you are, you're there, right? And you can leave this conversation and, and talk to your parents Mm -hmm. in, in a different way. They're still there. It's actually not too late. You're actually in the house. They're actually there. Now, you know, I'm sure me saying this to you is like making you like, I'm sick to my stomach. KJ, can we get this back on track? Like, right? You don't want to go there. And why would we want to go there? Because I think these conversations, to have these conversations is to acknowledge that death is real, that love is real, that grief is real, you know, and you talk about like, genre bending or hybrid Mm -hmm. or like fiction like this is what i'm talking about like this is real and yet we you know silence is so um much easier it's so much easier until it's not right Mm -hmm. and then it's like whoa it is you know it, it it tears a house down and, and I think that that's what part of camera person for me of like, like just like opening up certain things that were like so painful. Like, how am I going to speak about the fact that I filmed a baby while he was dying and that I kept filming for hours and hours? Like that was like the, the, like tidal wave of feelings that are being held back mm-hmm. in my in me as a human having experienced that having knowing that family's still out there having you know on and on and on right knowing that we live in a world where there's a hospital where they don't have any blood to give their patients where there's no doctor to come and do the c-section and i'm what am i doing i'm like paying a hundred dollars to have cocktails, you know, like there is so much shame that we as humans experience, uh, for all of our, all of our impotencies, all of our inadequacies, all the things we haven't done that we can't do. Right. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I mean, I think you look at the protests of this summer, you know, this nation grapples over and over with our history of, you know, racial violence, and yet we bury it over and over again. 
And certain people say, do not make me talk about that. Right. Mm -hmm. And other people say, I'm sick of talking about this. And other people say, when will we ever talk about this? Right. Um, and, and I just think that what is so powerful with cinema in some ways is that it opens up a safe space where we can see ourselves, where we can see our own shame and inadequacy and, and nobody's quite calling us on it. Right. We can sit there in the theater in the dark and we can cry. We can sob or we can laugh at something messed up. We're not supposed to laugh at like, KJ just dropped an air conditioner on her dad's head. Like that's messed up after being really earnest and saying how much she loves him. Right. And so that, so that I give you freedom. The cinema gives us freedom to acknowledge our humanity, but our humanity is hard to deal with. <laughs> you know, our humanity is like, damn, it's a mess. So, so, you know, I mean, I think I feel real tenderness and, and, um, and just like awe at how hard it is to be human, how hard it is to love people so much that we are like paralyzed in our capacity to speak of their deaths. Like that's, that's powerful for me. I, I'm curious. Well, let me, let me step back when saying this. Um, <laughs> I can't wait to see where you're going to well, go. No, I mean, I mean, there, I mean, I think one thing that everything comes together beautifully in this film. And of course there is a, a, a linear aspect to this. Um, your, your, your dad's descent, um, his move to New York and, and time in New York. And so I'm, I'm sure there's certain things here that you can structure around. Um, but that balance, you know, you just said it very nicely, that way that we can go from an air conditioner to a, a, a very sincere moment. Um, I have to imagine, though, tonally, you know, yes, intellectually, emotionally, these things go together. Tonally, structurally, um, I have to imagine those turns, those cuts are something that had to have been very hard to figure out and take time. I'll, I'll just, I'll start you with one. We were talking about the scene with your dad um, in the house and you put the camera down. And I, I think it's the next scene where we're, 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 we're in, we're back, you know, we're behind the scenes on the heaven set and we're talking about his toes and you're about to, you know, and, and he's sitting in a lounge chair. And I think there's even some kind of funny line about it. Um, now that works. It's funny it's emotionally resonant to some degree, but I have to imagine there's lots of those cuts. those lots of those transitions that don't work. Right. And so I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about a little bit about that. Yes. Yes. Okay. So, you know, we got like, I went down one of my rabbit holes. You had asked me earlier about process. Um, so what we did very deliberately with this film was one, we knew we can rely on observational documentary work mm -hmm. to reveal unexpected things. Like it's like, it's like clockwork, except you don't know when it's going to happen. Right. But and you, you, have you, the, and you, and you have the advantage of the fact that if it is just you and your dad, you're, 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 you're an able camera person. I'm an, well, I'm an able camera person and my dad's got dementia. 
he might do it again, a second time or a third time, right? <laughs> so, so it's a combination of those two things. So, so, you know, one, we're dealing with the world is unexpected and out of control. So, you know, we're at my dad's office, we're packing up, there's suddenly a snowstorm outside. We can't leave the office. We're exhausted. We film. My dad's taking a nap. Judy's tired. It's snowing. And then I see my dad's reflection in the window and it reminds me of the Wizard of Oz. And so I shoot that shot and focus on the snow and focus on the... And Nels sees that shot later in the edit room and it is a visual expression of the idea of disintegration. It's also magical and power and the unexpected. And, and so all of those themes that are sort of active running through me all the time when I'm filming, they resonate in many ways. So you're, what you're saying is correct. Like, where do they resonate most? If you put this moment against this moment, what happens tonally? And so what I, where I'm like, where I started to talk to you about process, respect for the other human beings in this process. So respect for my dad, respect for Nels, the editor, respect for Judy, the sound person, respect for you, Chris, the journalist. We are doing something together. We each have skills, position, capacity. And by position, I mean like we're located somewhere. You're in your parents' house right? And your position is also one of an interviewer who doesn't get asked questions, right? But something's happening. We're doing a back and forth. So we're in new unstable territory together. If I can respect you, you can respect me. How do we like, how do we make something new out of this? How do we make something, how do we take all of these themes, cinema, time, death, mortality, family, and we build something together with our from our two different positions and capacities. So that was like the hope was that we would do this. And so, so sort of like I love every step of the process. I love how weird it is. So that filming with my dad and having him sit in the chair could mean new things every time I did it. Just to clarify that beautiful image with the snow and that you captured of you and your dad or of your dad in the, in the reflection. Can we talk specifically? I mean, obviously we can make the connections now that we've seen the finished project, but in terms of that process, and I guess you, you said Nels had reacted strongly to it. How does that inform? Does that inform what you're going to go film on the stage? Is that, I mean, there is all this snow and the glitter and things like this, but I mean, is that a direct, maybe you already headed in that direction and now you have a more, a key visual. So that's beautiful, right? Because you made me realize I made an unconscious connection, which is what I think is happening all the time with cinema, right? Like sound takes us different places. Images take us different places. Words take us different places. Touch takes us different places, right? And once you have touched someone, once you have seen something, you shift and you can touch in a new way. You can see in a new way. Some of it you don't remember that it happened until something triggers it back again, right? And, and this can work in like horrible ways, like with terrible trauma that people have experienced, 
Or it can work in beautiful ways where it's like love, the memory of love comes back to you, right? So I think about this a lot in relation to death and bereavement and the absence presence of a person who is dead, right? Um, so in a specific way, no, I did not think, oh, that's confetti and snow falling. I'm putting that into heaven. But I saw that. I saw it. And then when we realized we wanted to film in slow motion because of my father's dementia, we said, what falls through the air? What would be beautiful falling through the air slowly? Bubbles, confetti. And I thought of snow, but I knew it would melt, right? And I wanted my dad to be eating ice cream, but I knew it would melt. So then you get a chocolate fountain, you know? So you, it's that relationship between um, the imagination, the constraints. But I think experiencing things teaches us how to experience new things. So that's why the practice, doing things over and over again, or the craft, it, it gives us new ways to do it. So if you talk to your parents about death, I think our fear is we're only going to talk about it once. But if you get practice at it, and you try it with different tones, you know, like whatever, you could talk about it every day that you're staying there with them. And suddenly it becomes less loaded. It becomes less impossible to speak of. The silence becomes lighter. Um, is, that, is that something, I'm very curious though, what you just said is something that you've experienced personally. Is this something that as a filmmaker, and you're in the editing room and you're thinking about me, the viewer at home and accepting these ideas. You're also that becomes a guide of when am I going to show my hand? When am I going to cut to these things and, and, and finding that the balance that you're talking about finding in one's personal life? One is, is that what dictated to a certain degree the edit and the, and, and the structure of finding those moments and thinking of the viewer coming into it? Absolutely. You're so on it with me today. Yes, yes, because the idea is like, okay, we're all going to die. Half of us say, if I die. Like sometimes when I ask people the question, how do you wish to die? People will say, well, if I die, mm -hmm. which I used to say, which is hilarious. Or they'll be like, I want to die in my sleep. I want it to be painless. And it's like, really? There'll be no pain anywhere for no one who loves you. Like, you know, right? Like these sort of wish these fantasies about what death could be, um, you know, you're asking me about, do we think about the audience in the edit room? So like with so much love and tenderness and respect, we think about the audience because it's like, you know, it's that like, can we do this to them? Yeah, we're going to do this to them. Like, can we punk the audience here? Mm -hmm. What would it take to punk someone as smart as you who knows everything there is to know about cinema language, who's seen camera person, who knows I'm a camera person. So if my dad's really having a heart attack, what would I do? What would I really do? I, I'm making a film right now. I'm not going to bring my big camera in there with me, but I'd have my phone. But if I drop my phone on the floor, would I pick it up? Would I not pick it up? Right. That was imagined. What I did with my dad in our house, when I put that camera down, it had nothing to do with me thinking, what's the audience going to think about this moment? It was like, I just got to hug my dad. Like, I was wrecked. Like, I could barely hold on to the camera, right? Mm -hmm. And so that knowing that sometimes 
We're compartmentalized enough and in control enough that we can craft things and imagine things and make them happen. And sometimes it's so out of our control, we can't even get the focus. We can't even, I could, I could not hold that camera anymore. I had to put it down, right? So this interplay between my needs and your needs, you are the audience, right? Like, mm-hmm. so, so that back and forth, that ongoing, but I have needs I don't even know I have. You have needs you don't even know you have. And that's how documentary work informs us, right? That's how fictional work informs us. It's like, I didn't know I needed that. Mm-hmm. But somebody else did. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, wondering if you, I'm wondering if you could talk about, and maybe this is an unfair question, but is there a moment where you were struggling with something in, in the edit and there was some... In, in that element of trying different things, trying different combinations where something came together. I mean, I know there was obviously probably a moment where you put something together and it, it comes together, but it also opens, opens a door uh, to a certain degree. Was there something, was there something that you were really having trouble with? And, and there was something about like a magic combination of a transition or something that just really kind of like opened the film up in an interesting way. Uh, you know, you're making me think about the funeral scene um, how hard we struggled with it and how it, it, um, it just refused us. It like refused to come together the whole film long. It was one of the first things that we filmed and, um, it was, uh, I had imagined we'd, we'd do the, that funeral at the beginning of the film process, but that I was really going to make this film all the way until my dad died for real. And we we're going to do his real funeral. And then, and then I would have that footage. And so I was really attached to this idea of we're putting that funeral at the beginning of the movie, you know? And so we kept trying and trying to make it work at the beginning of the movie because we needed a real death to put it at the end of the movie. And we didn't have the real death. And so there was like this sense of like being incomplete was going on throughout the film. Um, the sense of it being too late. I had this real sense of um, my own inadequacy that I had started the film too late, that my dad was already much further gone than, and that I had already lost him, that um, no one would be able to watch this film because it would be too painful because it was too painful for me. Right. Mm -hmm. And in the same way, like you look at that moment where he's down at the bottom of the stairs um, with the blood, like that was one of the first things I did also by myself with him. And I like made him lay down the floor and I just, it was so excruciating, the whole thing and so funny and so awful. And I was just like, what am I thinking? Like, I'm not a filmmaker. Like I'm making my own father, like lay down the stairs. I'm like not even holding the camera straight. And like, like, this is not, no one would ever take this for real. You know, it was so much like self-flagellation that I couldn't even look at that shot. And then, you know, at one point I showed it to my dad and he was like, wouldn't there be blood everywhere? And it was like, oh yeah, we're putting blood in there with VFX. And it was like, and then that moment when Nels let it hang as long as it hung. And then like, could you just move your arm a little bit? Plus the VFX, like, you know, that was, so it was layering. It was like layer upon layer a back and forth between what dad thought was funny, what we thought was funny, what I was, I couldn't yet see because I thought I had already failed, but 
the starting point of the movie was knowing failure was inevitable. Like, like this conversation you're going to have with your parents, it's going to be, it's going to be a mess. You're like, you're going to be uncomfortable. You're going to hurt someone's feelings. Uh, you're going to stop it too soon. It's going to be a bit of a mess. And then you're going to have new feelings about the conversation. Mm -hmm. And then you're going to come back again and talk some more. Right? As opposed to the not making the movie. Just staying with all of these, like containing all of this, like what is this going to be? So that's what that's what we built into the process. Accept the failure of your humanity. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and accept the impossibility of keeping my dad alive forever. When we talk about the layering, let's talk a little bit about uh, two sound elements. One, just the use of sound and and creatively doing that because there seems to be a tonal thing there too. Um, and then also, and maybe this is a separate conversation, but there's also an element of um, the layering of your voiceover. You know, are you going to, are you going to have voiceover, you know, than the conceit of you're in the closet? I, I'm just, I'm just curious because I feel as to me, we often underestimate sound Um but at the end of the day, these those two elements are a huge modulating force of of how we're going to go in and out of that. And I have to imagine, just like the edit itself, it's not it, it, it it's probably an experimentation and trying different things out, right? Yeah, absolutely. And you're so great about always being so attentive to sound. You know, um, I learned so much from working with Pete Horner at Skywalker and all the people at Skywalker on camera person, and I learned that sound took me to different emotional places. I learned that it gave me new ideas. So in this process, we deliberately built in three sound mixing sessions at the beginning, the middle and end of the film. We knew we would be undoing work mm -hmm. that we would fully mix and then unmix and break it. But that in searching for the tones, so, you know, we searched from almost the very beginning for the sound of Ray's horn when he blows the horn at church, because mm. we knew, you know, there were a lot of ways we could have gone with that. Right. But we wanted it right on the edge of like, is this really happening? Is this not happening? I, I want to laugh. I'm not going to laugh. I got to laugh, you know? So, so we played with that sound all the way through the whole process of the film because it needed to do a different thing when the funeral scene was at the end of the movie than it did when the movie was at the beginning of the movie and it and it did it's the it's the scene that got us the money you know it's how we you know pitched it to Netflix was showing that scene so that horn did a different thing when it was trying to get us the money for the film right and so um this idea for me back to the thing of seeing people seeing what people do in their collaborative craft. So understanding what a sound mixer does, what a sound recordist does, and saying, I want that person with me every step of the process. Not at the end. I want to write in the beginning, middle, and end. I want to shoot documentary in the beginning, middle, and end. I want to imagine things beginning, middle, and end. I want the VFX. We talked to VFX people the whole time. Mm -hmm. We didn't execute it until the very, very, very end because it was the most expensive thing and we had to be sure we were going to use it. But those kinds of that relationship between constraint, craft, dialogue with craftspeople about how do we shift tone? Mm -hmm. I wanted that to be a back and forth throughout the process. And people at Skywalker told me, like, no one's ever done this before. 
right? No one's ever come to mix at the beginning of a movie, to get ideas from the mix, to go out and shoot new things. Can, can, That's what we did. Can, I have two, before we get into voice, I have two questions off that. One moment that I absolutely loved, and it's probably the film nerd in me, but there's this incredibly quiet moment. Your father first comes to New York. You go through the whole boarding process of dropping off the kids, and then you're in the car. I Presumably, it feels like it's just you and your dad. It's a tight close-up, um, and you're having a very sincere conversation. I, I, I can't remember. It was, um, what did you envision for this stage in your life? And he was talking about being a little bit more flexible. And, and, and there is a, there is a, there's a tightness of the frame. Um, there is a sound element and there is also a music element. And then you reveal, and I'm thinking, oh, this is, I actually thought like, oh, this is KJ in the car with her dad. She's probably got the camera all set ahead of time. And then all of a sudden pops up the crew member and it's like, we got to fix that rattle. We got to do this and that. Um, so there, it, it's, it's interesting to me. I, I'm, that's something where it's like, logically, when I think about that moment, that feels like it shouldn't work. Sometimes all these ones that we talked about with the apparatus, it fits into these ideas. That one feels like you're undermining. It didn't. I want to be clear. It feels like you should, if you would describe that to me, I would have been like, you're undermining my emotional element here. This is an emotional thing. And we all know about the apparatus of filmmaking to like get something, an intimate moment. Yeah, there probably was something here, but I'm curious about the evolution of that moment because it's something where I have to imagine why does that work? How did you get there? Because I feel like that was kind of like a, probably a journey with sound if you could pull it off, right? Oh, absolutely. One, it is magic, right? Like one, it is just why do certain things work? They are beyond our capacity to understand. Um, two, I would say, okay, like I know as we, as any parent knows or any human knows, like riding in a car with a person is a different way of being with a person. Mm. Like you have different kinds of quality of conversation riding in a car and there's new space that opens up. Right. And so I wanted that sort of un self-conscious time where you're just, you've got something else to do. So other, other conversations can happen. Right. Working with Laura Poitras on the oath, we had put a suction cup on the front windshield of a camera mm -hmm. and, you know, shot through the streets of Sanaa. And that was like, ah, it was such a, it was such a solution for an impossible situation. Like she was able to film with Abu Jandal in his car. She wasn't in the car. The suction cup was in the car with the camera. He was alone with the camera. And I was like, oh, okay. Like I can let the camera be alone with my dad in the car. I can drive the car and, but I do need good sound and I can't do all three of those things. Um, you know, and I, you know, I sure I almost crashed the car like, cause you know, cause I was still thinking about yeah, the camera yeah, work. Right. Like, yeah. and, and, and that's also sort of being in this space of like, can you be a daughter, a mother, a child, a filmmaker, keep take care of the person who has dementia like there was a way in which i was showing the impossibility of this situation like how everything like that it's high stakes like i could have crashed the car because mm -hmm. i was trying to do too many things at the same time which is sort of what life asks of us mm -hmm. 
but I was also trying to be a decent director, right? And like, you know, get good sound. Um, and so Judy was hidden in the back, like she often is in a fiction film when you've got two actors riding in a car, you know, so it was thinking about all these things I learned from cinema about how do we replicate or how do we um, activate human um, complexity? How do we let the complexity be? And you, and you try different strategies to allow the complexity. And then you hit the edit room and then it's Nell's like doing jump cuts between those close-up shots because he's so fascinated by what's happening in my father's eyes as the dementia makes him go blank, reattaches him to reality, goes blank again. And then the introduction of this music, this incredible, you know, Japanese band who has like shaved off the edges of the pipes of the organ because they want it to be atonal and like nothing you've ever heard before. So it's like searching for the, where is the unexpected in everything, in the music, in the edit, in the shooting situation, in the like, will I crash the car or not crash the car? You know, where is it? And some of it's out of our control, mm-hmm. always. Also, I want to just come back to, you were talking about um, mixing early and, and or doing three stages of the mix and doing one early. I wonder if you could give an example of something that came from that early mix that then informed going back and filming or going to do something like that. Because I think that's, you know, I'm fascinated. I don't want you to give away the secret sauce here, but I am fascinated about the creative choices in terms of how they evolved based on what you shot and then coming and going to do more. Um, I'm wondering if, if there's anything that pops into mind from that. The dance scene in heaven where we have, you know, the backup singers are spitting sequins and the stuntman's flying over the car. So from the very beginning of the movie when it was an idea, I was telling the producers I worked with, Nels, that the story of my mother's accident with her mother really mattered to this film. My mother seeing her mother's death um, right next to her in the car that she was driving, that that was core for me in this film. And you know, I kept telling the story and people kept saying, well, is there any footage or how would we do that? Or do you want to reenact that? Or, you know, and we would talk about it again and again and again. And Nell said to me at one point, like, you've got another movie to make about your mother. Just make another movie about your mother. And the other thing that I wanted at a certain point was, you know, as we, you know, Maureen, Ryan, Marilyn Ness, Katie Chevigny, they kept saying like, why are you still killing your dad? Like, can't we just like do something fun with him? Do we have to kill him? Like, and at a certain point, the idea of heaven entered, right? And I wanted a big, crazy musical dance number. And Nels was like, we don't need a big, crazy musical dance number. And, and sort of, you know, little, he was like, we just need a shot of this and a shot of this. And I was like, we're I'm making a cute, crazy musical dance number. And so that then I said to the choreographer, can we do a crazy musical dance number? You know, and, and it was sort of impossible. Like my dad can't dance. He has dementia. We're shooting in slow motion. The sound can't be synced. The, what can the dancers dance to? It's all broken up into little bits. And then 
it happened. We shot all those elements and I was like, we can cut this. And Nels was like, I don't want to cut a music video. I don't want to do that. And, and I was like, come on. And, and it was so interesting because, um, we, Jeremy Workman, who had cut the camera person trailer, um, I, I, you know, we were talking to him and all of a sudden I was like, oh, I'm going to let, like, let's have Jeremy cut this. If Nels doesn't want to cut this, let Jeremy cut a music video. I want to see a music video. And so we got, and Nels was like, cool. I got plenty of other things to do. Jeremy can do it. And then Jeremy did it. And Nels was like, oh, I see what you're talking about. And it was like, he was so in his, he had so built the structure of the film. He couldn't, he couldn't see, didn't want to see the thing I wanted to see. And then we, you know, worked with a composer and I was like, we were asking a crazy thing, like create this song to a rhythm people didn't dance to with these words. I wanted to have the word bell in it, you know, like, and, and it didn't work. The music didn't work. And then at the very end in the sound mix, Pete brought back all this stuff we'd figured out in the very first sound mix. And he brought in real crash noises. And by that time, we'd found the place to boat my mom's accident story. And we'd written the voiceover that said, like, this world is harsh and hard and awful and you got to embrace the joy. So we had the transition. But all of that happened. That was like built out of everybody's blind spots. Mm-hmm. And everybody's willingness to keep saying, this seems to matter. None of us know why it matters so much, how it's going to work. But let's just keep trying, keep failing, keep trying again. And so that, you know, I hated the dance scene. Nels hated the dance scene until the very end when we pushed it as far as we possibly could in the sound mix based on what we'd done in the sound mix in the very beginning. But, you know, we didn't have that music when the dancers were dancing. The scene didn't work. The story about my mom wasn't supposed to be in the movie, according to everyone else in the movie, except for me. Did you do all the soundstage stuff at the same time? Or did you keep going back to the soundstage? Soundstage all at the same time. All at the same time. And late in the process. And late. That was what I was wondering, because there's an element here of, I I don't want to separate narrative and uh you know narrative scripted and 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 nonfiction filmmaking in some kind of binary way but there is an element of um the experience of dementia that you're capturing through through pure staging and 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 artifice and i'm i'm, I'm curious that's that was one of my questions was is that just something you knew you were going to need or was that in reaction to you know, the year later with your dad and he's, he's starting to go. Yeah, it was, I didn't know I was going to need it. Mm-hmm. I, I hoped for the really big extravagant stunts. You mm-hmm. know, I wanted him to fall out the building in Hong Kong. I wanted to catch him on fire. Like, and then it was the realization we can't do those big extravagant things because of his capacity. But I wanted that, like, I've always wanted to, you know, do hell in a movie. I want fire. I want, you know, dancing. I want, and um, I wanted color. I needed color. Like my dad wears that same light blue shirt and khaki pants. And like the idea of like the world reducing and him reducing. I was like, the movie's getting so small and it's all, you know, light blue and khaki. Like I needed the color of heaven. 
which was needing the fantasy, which was needing my dad restored to having capacity, which he had lost by that point. So the slow-mo gave us back. We entered his time-space continuum. We stretched time out, right? And can I tell you, thank you for saying like you didn't, you don't want to do like a binary difference. Like what I, the process we came to with Maureen Ryan building those shoots was new for both of us. We, it, it was like, I told her, I want to not know as much as possible to the last possible moment. And so we're working with the budget. We're working with the time. We're working with SAG actors, but Tell me when's the last possible moment I need to know how many actors there are. Tell me when, you know, because our main protagonist, we didn't know what he was going to do at the very end. So all of those collage elements were brought together, but we all put them together in the moment. So it was like filming a documentary. And we knew we had the behind the scenes camera working and filming. So we, we, we were like, all space was covered, like the artifice and the front, you know, all sides of the theater were open. So we felt free, like even if none of the fictional material works, we've got the other material. Mm-hmm. So suddenly we, we took more risks than we might have. And where does the voiceover come into play? When in the process did hmm. that come? You love that, that voiceover. I, no, I, I, well, once again, I think my gut would have been especially considering you stepping out from behind the camera and, 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 and the role that you play on screen. Um, I don't know that my instinct and I wasn't part of your team, but I don't know that my instinct would have been towards, towards voiceover. And I don't know if, so it's curious to me, it works, it's great. And it it delivers, it's, it's a wonderful framing mechanism for this whole thing and the way you do it. But I'm just curious, you know, has this film is being rewritten and written when, when and how does that decision come into it? Cause I imagine it's a narrative with your guys case. I imagine it's a narrative one, a structural one. Yeah. It came really late and both Nels and I resisted it as long as we possibly could. Um, I think because, you know, we were so happy with what had happened with camera person that there was so much that could be said without voiceover um, but we knew I was more self-conscious in this movie and, you know, the footage was functioning differently than it did in camera person. Um, but it was Jason Spingar and Koff at um, Netflix. You know, it was Kate Townsend and Jason working with us from Netflix um, throughout the process. And Jason, like at one point said something like, you know, you're throwing your dad under the bus all the time, but you don't throw yourself under the bus. Uh, like as a person, you know, like we were having these like remarkable conversations throughout the production. And he was, he said, you know, people need to hear you talk. He, you know, you speak through your camera, you're speaking through this movie, but there's some things that you say, things that are in your voice. There's emotion in your voice. There's the way you use words and you should, there should be voiceover in this movie. And we were just like, no, 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 no. But um, then, you know, we thought, let's try. And then we had this hilarious moment of like, there's no room in my house. There's no quiet space. So I go, you know, I have this one bedroom apartment, but there's like a colossal closet. So I go into the closet and my dad kept interrupting me. 
So I'd be like getting really emotional and earnest. And, and there's like this one really funny recording where I'm like, dad, like, you know, like, Dah. and so the tonal shift, I went from like the pretentious self-aware voice to like, really like, like yelling at my dad for interrupting me one more time. And it was like, to hear the difference in my quality of voice, to hear my humanity in it, I was like, oh, we could do this. Right. And then it was Nels's like, yeah, we can set up the closet. And then, you know, so, so we like that idea of doing things gives you new ideas. Having the conversation makes a new conversation happen. There's an element here um, from a story standpoint that works really nicely where it's like, um, you, you, you establish your father in New York and him adjusting. And then we cut and it says a year later in the SpaghettiOs. And and he clearly has progressed. Um, I'm. I don't know how to ask this question. Was that something that was? It, it works incredibly in the film. Was it something that you knew kind of going in that you were going to pause? That there was going to be a that there was going to be a need to pause in filming this. Well, I'm laughing because I didn't pause. That's a constructed pause that it's constructed by Nels Bangerter putting one year later on the screen. And in fact, um, you know, we, we, we built and unbuilt my father's dementia. Dementia is so weird that you, you can stay in its loop forever and um, not know whether a person is there or not there. Like, you know, it, it just messes with you all the time, which my dad was doing throughout this whole process. So we had to create in the viewer the understanding that it was advancing. But in terms of the material we had, the scenes we had, how we had constructed my dad, we needed to, like, reveal less of the dementia early and reveal more of it later, but it was there. And so for Nels, he really, he loves those, he loves those kind of things in films where it's just like out of nowhere, you're like, boom, time has passed. It's a way of acknowledging for the audience, okay, be prepared for change. You've spent your life in the nonfiction world working on on some working with some amazing filmmakers, making some films that uh, there was an incredible response to. Um, I'm very curious about the last 12 days. It is October 14th. And you, with this film, pandemic interrupted, you still had your Sundance experience, which is very much one of sharing it with colleagues in a, in a tight-knit world, and even journalists who who cover these type of things. And, and certainly... Um, you know, you've had lots of experiences of sharing films. My experience with documentary films, in in yours and some of the ones you worked on, is is that it, it it's it's going to the IFC Center on a you know it, it's going to Sundance. It's 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 the one good thing about award season. It's like we can focus on these these films, um, but it really does often feel like a community. It feels as if we're talking either on a political spectrum or in a cinephile spectrum. It feels this way. I'm very curious about, and maybe you don't, maybe from your perspective right now, it's not something, maybe you don't have connection to it, but what is the 12, these 12 days like been with it on Netflix? I'm very curious about it from a documentary standpoint, because I have to imagine 
you interacted with an audience, you reached an audience, you had some kind of experience that's, you and I would be talking about this anyway. <laughs> but I, I'm just, I'm very curious if you can feel that and how that is different. Mm, that's such a great question, you know, and I, I, because I wanted this film, like I love our documentary ecosystem, but I wanted this film to break out of it into a world where, you know, caregivers or social workers or someone whose parent has dementia, like could, it, it could land on their radar. Someone who didn't know that documentary might matter to their life, that it could hit them. Like, you know, so I wanted like, I want it out in the comedy world. I want, you know, I want it like, I want it out in any world that needs it, which I think, you know, any filmmaker wants that, right? Um, but this idea of like, what? There's like this huge global audience right now. Um, I would say they both are accessible to me and aren't accessible to me. So, you know, we've had like an incredible response from England and the United States where the Netflix, you know, finance publicity teams have been doing an incredible amount of work getting it out to journalists. And so, you know, I was like on BBC News Nightly. It was insane. Like, how did that happen? Right. And then I, st I started to see the hits coming from like India Times, you know, so suddenly like you see, you see in some ways, like we talk about like decolonizing film or decolonizing docs. Like there's like, there's still colonial structures built into distribution networks. Right. And so like the award season has largely been for Americans or for British people, right? And if you're a, a director coming from Romania, like the incredible Alexander Nanu with Collective, right? Like this amazing film about corruption, like who's seen that? How? Like now we've built a system where a film like that can get out into the world. But, you know, I'm fascinated by this process of how we get films out to people. And there's no question in the world, this is going to be, you know, the widest audience I've ever had. So far. I bet it's already the widest. It, it probably is. I don't, but I don't know, do I? Because Netflix hasn't told me how many people are seeing it. But what I do know is that it's like, this is our life for me and my brother. Literally, like, from every walk of society, from every uh, place in the world, anyone who's ever known us is like coming out and telling us stories about our parents, right? So in this particular case, it's like deeply amazing because it's bringing both of my parents back to life for me. Like I never was like, oh, this movie's going to bring my mom back to life. This movie's totally bringing my mom back to life. Like I'm hearing from people in the Philippines who knew my mom mm, in college. That's crazy. Yeah. That's crazy. Like it's it's so beautiful. It's so beautiful. Um, but I I I do trust in this universe of I'll never know who this movie matters to, but like if it makes them call their mom or have a conversation about death with their parents, like I I it makes me this makes me deeply happy. And I think the other thing that's really nice here, and this is is that I, I'm a big fan of, of nonfiction filmmaking and there's some great stuff being done right now, but <clears throat> the palette needs to expand. 
and it needs there needs to be some fun and joy. And I we're all drawn to these top. Collective is an amazing film, and you know we're all drawn to 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 stories like that of corruption and 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 wanting those stories to be told. But tonally, and it does get too much. I mean, after like three four days of True False, which is like my favorite festival, I'm often like. I, 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 you know, I'm depressed. I'm going to shoot my, yeah. It's just like, is there no Penny Lane this year? Like, it's just like, you know, and, and it just, I think like this film is, 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 is Tabitha, I don't mean to drop it, has always talked about this and this need for us to expand the palette. And it feels like this film on Netflix with its, it's warm, open heart and, 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 and wide comedic range is, is, is something that could be, I'm, I'm hoping there's more of, and also the playfulness of it. I am too, but I'll tell you, you know, like you look at something like I may destroy you, uh, you know, that feels to me like evidence that the more people we let in to this ecosystem from all around the world, the more tones we're going to have and the less people are going to feel like I have to represent something bigger than myself. I just get to speak from my position of myself because I'm not battling, you know, two centuries of misrepresentation and lack of representation. Like that representation is out there. Then we will start to see this range of tone. Then we're going to see joy. Then we're going to like, things are going to shift the more people we let in and the more we allow people to speak from the place of their own specificity in a world where like, it's not like, it's not a moral obligation to speak from the point of, of representation that has been absent. You know, I often say that with the students I work with, I say like, you know, a lot of times I, you know, in, at NYU, I've worked with a lot of Chinese students and it's like, the burden they feel to represent China is so great. And I'm like, you know what? No, you are representing what it is to be Chinese by representing what it is to be you. The closer you get to speaking from your own voice, you can't do it alone. You cannot represent China alone. I cannot represent whiteness alone I can you know like but we we grapple with these things in cinema and if we grapple with human humanity that humanity is not just victimization it is not just oppression it is also humor it is also like irreverence it is also transgression you know it's sex and death and rock and roll and soul music and you know like it is all of those things, then I think that's when we start. We can like both like rage at the world and enjoy the world, which I think is what we all want to do. Well, thank you. Thank you for this film and thank you for your time. And, uh, you know, and thank you for sharing your father with us. You know, you're, you're talking about your personality and, and, or a filmmaker's personality. And one feels not only your sense of humor, but one feels his openness and his um, what I assume is his own kind of devilish sense of humor and his own playful way in, in this film as well. Totally. He, he was happy to share <laughs> and he likes it when people cry. He says, when the eyes are dry, the organs cry. So he wanted you to cry. <laughs> and honestly, like maybe can you watch this movie with your parents?
uh, or ask them to watch it. <laughs> hey, really good. Um, I, yeah, well, we, we we've got some things going on right now. Where there's been some, do- you know, yes, but I mean, we've got we've got a few things going on. So yes, but don't it, we all? Yeah. And respect to all the things going on. And you and I will get back to each other on this one. But lots of love and courage for all the things going oh, on. Thank you, and thank you for taking the time. All right. Okay. Thanks, Kirsten. Love ya. Bye. Bye.